The idea that you would turn to a forbidding work like James Joyce's Ulysses and try to find tips on how to live just shows how stubborn our need and desire for advice really is. So I'm interested in this, this idea that the self-help drive is something that we engage in kind of almost unconsciously without being fully in control of it. On the surface, the self-help and literary modernism genres seem like complete opposites, with nothing at all in common. Self-help captures the public eye with promises of a better life, while modernism is beloved by highbrow academics with a penchant for literary magic tricks and stream of consciousness. However, the apparent competition between the two genres, which began in the early 20th century, has given rise to a blurred distinction and even a spirit of collaboration between them. In this episode, and in her recent book The Self-Help Compulsion, Harvard English professor Beth Bloom explains how modernism and self-help can learn from each other. I'm Sanjana Narayanan. And I'm Caitlin Lee. And this is The Veritas Lab, the podcast where we give you the scoop on the latest research going on at Harvard, straight from the professors themselves. In this episode of the Veritas Lab, we'll be speaking with Beth Bloom, Assistant Professor of English and Associate Director of Undergraduate Studies at Harvard University. Her writing and research interests include literary modernism, the self-help genre, and sociology and contemporary literature more broadly. This year, Professor Bloom published The Self-Help Compulsion, a book on the relationship between modernist literature and self-help. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Bloom. I started reading your book recently, and even though I've only finished the introduction so far, I'm so excited to read the rest soon and learn more about your writing during this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Since your most recent work focuses on self-help and modernism and the relationship between the two, I think we should probably start by making sure we have a working definition of both of those genres. Let's start with self-help, because I think that one is probably familiar to most people. I think the common definition of self-help is something like books that teach you how to be a better person or help you solve your personal problems. But one thing I found interesting about your book was you define self-help slightly differently. You actually define it as an alternative pedagogy to the university. Could you explain this a little more and maybe also tell us about self-help's relationship with academic or, quote, serious literature? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my book, I'm really using a kind of twofold definition of self-help. So on the one hand, I'm thinking about it as a way of reading and a way of reading that can be applied to any text from any period and any culture. So, so I think about self-help as kind of one moment in a longer tradition of reading books for advice about how to live. But I also am using a different sense of self-help, a more historically specific sense, uh, to refer to the self-help industry, which is something that really kind of starts to flourish the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century due to lots of historical factors, kind of increasing secularization of society, the rise of uh, mail-order publishing and pocketbooks, and, and the rise of this movement known as New Thought Philosophy, which was very influential to, to the spread of self-help. So I'm balancing these two definitions and thinking about when I describe self-help as an alternate pedagogy, what I mean by that is that the, the kind of reading self-help advances in this idea of looking to texts for advice about how to live and practical tips is very different from the kind of reading you see promoted in an academic institution, which is often premised on, on teaching 
a disinterested approach to reading literature, one that isn't about finding wisdom or practical tips, but is about understanding historical context and political implications and formal techniques and more specialized kind of relations to reading. So those are the, the different understandings of, of self-help and reading that the book is, is uh, juggling with. Yeah, this dichotomy between formal academic reading and the reading for wisdom and practical tips that motivates self-help is pretty striking. One example of this that you mentioned in your book is the story of Dale Carnegie, who wrote the now well-known self-help book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. But his idea for a course based off the ideas in his self-help manual was actually rejected by Columbia and NYU. Yeah, Dale Carnegie is, is such an interesting figure for the book. Um, I was really fascinated to learn that he had this fantasy of teaching a course on public speaking and on many of the, the pieces of advice that he would end up giving in his 1936 manual, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, but that he was rejected by Columbia and NYU and had to end up at the Harlem YMCA uh, teaching a class, uh, kind of an adult education class on, on this subject. So that got me thinking about the way that self-help is positioned in relation to official academic culture and the way that it can be an opportunity for people to learn and to, to be introduced to new literature and new techniques who are excluded from official academic education. So, so I think that's an important function that self-help can play is, is to provide a kind of alternate space for thinking through problems about how to live, how to improve oneself for people who don't have access to official university education. I'd really love to dive more into that concept, the idea of self-help as a more inclusive space outside of the university. But let's hold on to that thought for now. Since we've just defined self-help, let's turn to defining modernism, which even beyond your most recent book is one of your areas of interest, I think. I know that modernism is a literary movement in the late 1800s and early 1900s centered around experimentation and breaking with traditional norms of writing. Is this the best way to describe it? What unites modernist writers like Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and Marcel Proust? In a way, right? Their innovative techniques almost seem to defy classification. I think that's a great place to start for thinking of, about what modernism is. So when I teach modernism, I, I think the most useful way of explaining it is to say, well, let's think about what modernism is reacting against. And then that can help us get closer to understanding what modernism is. So modernism is reacting against the literature of the Victorian period, which the modernists saw as being very historicist, very materialist, overly neat and self-contained. So people like Virginia Woolf really rejected Victorian novels that they saw as presenting an overly facile and enclosed kind of structure and plot. And, and they thought that Victorian literature did not capture what it really felt like to be alive and to experience reality. And so to improve upon this, they pioneered techniques like stream of consciousness, where they tried to really show how a person thinks and the different associations a person has as they're going about their day. And, and they did this in order to offer a more accurate picture of what it feels like to be alive. Okay, so that almost seems like the antithesis of self-help, in that modernism seeks to value art for its own sake, right? Whereas self-help seeks to be of practical use. I may be getting this wrong, but did modernism emerge as a literary movement just as self-help was taking off commercially? It seems like these two contradictory movements are beginning at the same time. The argument of the book is, is that yes, a lot of people associate self-help with 
the 1930s. They think it started with Dale Carnegie and how to win friends and influence people. But really, one of the the main arguments of the book is that it begins much earlier. Um, It begins in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, when suddenly anyone who was interested in publishing a book had to reckon with the fact that this hugely popular genre was emerging of the self-improvement handbook. And any author would have been aware that there was really a growing demand for books offering practical advice. So how how fascinating uh, it is that in response to this, this whole movement, literary movement premised on, as you say, art for art's sake emerges, saying we're not going to offer anything useful. James Joyce referred to Ulysses as a uselessly uh, unread blue book of Eccles Street. So kind of celebrating its impracticality and the kind of nonsense quality of the work. And I, I think that was in, in response to the rise of this practical literature that modernism had to really compete with for readers. So Gustave Flaubert, one of the subjects of, of one of my chapters, he wrote a whole novel called Bouvard and Pécuchet in 1881. Um, so much earlier than most people would think of in relation to the self-help industry. But the book is basically every episode is making fun of these two copy clerks who are just, they embark on one self-improvement scheme after another, and it's always disastrous. The the results are always a total failure. They always end up getting into tons of trouble. And so I use that as an example to think about how modernism was not just reacting against self-help, but also trying to think about what kind of more authentic or or useful advice can uh, a novel give, if not this really facile and kind of schematic advice that you find in self-help. Maybe the modernists were interested in thinking about the same problem of how to live, but from a different and more complicated angle. So modernists were really competing with and reacting against the rise of self-help, celebrating modernist impracticality in the face of self-help's strong tendency towards the practical. But you also mentioned that modernists were trying to think about the same problems as self-help authors, such as how to live life and what useful advice a novel can give towards this end. Can you expand upon what you mean by this? Are there modernist texts with a strong self-help message? I mean, I wouldn't say that that you can find a strong self-help message in modernism, but I would say that you can find an interest in how to live and a counter advice in modernist literature. One of my favorite examples, for instance, is Virginia Woolf, who I show was actually very invested in criticizing this this rival who had actually, he was a, a literary critic who had written some negative reviews of some of her novels. His name was Arnold Bennett. But the other fascinating part of Bennett's career was that he was a very popular author of self-help books. Uh, he wrote a very popular book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. Um, and he offered very kind of didactic and schematic advice about what to do in order to make the most out of out of 24 hours so that one could be productive and improve oneself and, and things of the sort. And Wolf took this idea, I argue, and in books like Mrs. Dalloway, which is also set in 24 hours, offered her own version of how a person should live in in a day, in 24 hours. And her version of of how to live is premised less on this relentless drive towards self-improvement and self-perfection and more on, you know, what she describes as a form of impressionism, learning to appreciate the moment, to connect with other people, to experience one's impressions and articulate them. So I'm interested in how modernism is is reacting against and kind of criticizing self-help and using it to think about how it thinks people should live. 
That's super interesting, especially since I've just been reading Mrs. Dalloway, oh, actually. Perfect. It does feel very impressionistic, and it feels like I don't exactly know what I should be concretely taking away from it. But that does make sense. She's basically telling you to appreciate everything around you, even in a seemingly ordinary day. Right. And one of Wolf's quotes that I use in the book is she says, the best advice I can tell you is to readers is to take no advice. So it's part of what it's doing is teaching you not to depend on somebody else to tell you how to live and what to do, but to learn to do the work of figuring that out for yourself and kind of riffing off of these different possibilities and different hints that her book contains, but without being really dogmatic about it and saying, you know, you must get up at 5.30 a.m. every day and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So then, given this kind of opposition between self-help and modernism, when you titled your book The Self-Help Compulsion, I found that pretty interesting. What is this compulsion? Is self-help compelled by modernism, or is it the other way around? So the, the term compulsion in the title, it refers to this idea that self-help is something that people can't help but look for and do. Sometimes it is in spite of their best interests. So it refers to this idea that there's something insatiable about the desire for advice. This kind of um, insatiable desire is something that I think attempts to read modernist works for advice um, really disclose in a fascinating ways. My, my book, it, it doesn't want to condemn self-help, but it's very interested in offering a balanced perspective and taking seriously some of the productive and kind of aspirational qualities of self-help. But I use the, the term compulsion in the title to recognize that there is a sort of an addictive quality to a lot of self-help reading. So, so for instance, if you've seen that documentary, The Vow, that everyone's talking about right now, uh, that's an example, I think, of of how the need for self-help and the desire for personal growth comes from, from a kind of vulnerability and can be exploited and can go awry in ways that are important to recognize, I think. Um, I also look at the way that self-help has been used to spread literature around the world um, and the fact that self-help first introduces readers to a lot of important classical literature. I definitely resonate with that insatiable desire for advice that you say underlies our self-help compulsion. I think I subconsciously look in everything that I read or watch for pieces that I can apply to my own life. In addition, this idea that you brought up of self-help being used in a negative sense to exploit people's vulnerabilities is one that we definitely want to address later in this episode. But before we do that, you also discussed how self-help has done positive and productive cultural work, and I want to explore that. To my knowledge, self-help has traditionally been associated with American values. In your book, you cite Ben Franklin as perhaps the grandfather of the genre. But you also emphasize that self-help actually promotes a cross-cultural exchange. So what does this mean? Yeah, so in the same way that the book is really pushing against our temporal understanding of self-help as, as beginning in the 1930s or whatnot, it's also pressing against our, our national understanding of self-help as being this particularly, specifically, inherently American ideology. My book argues that self-help has always been an inherently cross-cultural phenomenon. And, and I saw that by looking at, at Benjamin Franklin, actually, and thinking about how he himself was inspired by Confucius and how he, was, he had actually translated um, some of Confucius's ideas and, and the way that his own art of virtue was itself inspired by these more ancient Chinese models. So you can always kind of go back and find an earlier precedent and a, a cross-cultural precedent for a lot of the American, the self-help that we think of as quintessentially American, in fact. And, and so I became really interested in thinking about 
how people would often first be exposed to Western literature through their reading of early self-help books. And, and one of the books that I talk about is Samuel Smiles's book, his 1859 book called Self-Help, which was one of the first to really use it in the title, that phrase self-help. And I became really fascinated by the fact that this book was tremendously popular all over the world, um, and especially in Japan, and that it was through this book and, and Smiles's quotations of literary authors in his handbook. Um, so he would he would quote like Shakespeare and you know use a Shakespeare quote to give advice on how to save money or something. <laughs> and then it, this is how some Japanese readers first were introduced to Shakespeare in this strange, self-helpy, decontextualized way. And so that made me really interested in thinking about the way that self-help, it becomes a, a vehicle of cross-cultural kind of exchange. So I was wondering then, is that a good thing? Because in your book's introduction, um, I thought it was interesting how you said you can either call this, quote, brazen textual recycling, or you can put a positive spin on it and say it's, quote, a communal archive of human experience. So is self-help just recycling old material and putting it into a palatable format, taking advantage of this compulsion people have to read it? Or is there something deeper going on that deserves more literary study than it's received so far? Well, that is the question. That is the million dollar question that, um, I mean, academics have, have traditionally been very insistent that self-help is, is an oppressive influence and that it is a compulsion with no kind of productive or useful um, influence on the people who read it. But in contrast, if you read the accounts of autodidacts or, you know, self-help fans, people who have read self-help, they'll often describe their encounter with self-help as being really transformative and inspirational and in really positive terms. And, and this is not, you know, these are smart readers who have gone on to do great and fascinating things in the political world, globally. And so I think it's important to take those self-accounts of, of what self-help is doing seriously and not just to come in with our academic preconceptions about uh, self-help's kind of political limits, but, but to think about all, all of the sides. And in the end, I think self-help can be, it can be good and it can be bad. Um, it's really not one or the other, but it depends on the context, on, on the way it's used. But I, I certainly think it's a mistake to too hastily dismiss it as being an oppressive force that only presents the illusion of agency and choice, because I don't think that's fully accurate of, of the reality of the way self-help has been used historically around the world. To a layperson, it doesn't seem like self-help is oppressive, but maybe that's what's insidious about it. Why do scholars say that it's oppressive? Well, the, the most famous critique of self-help, well, there are two thinkers that I can, I can think of. Theodore Adorno, who is very critical of the culture industry and the illusion of choice that genres like self-help presented. He had a critique of uh, astrology in a similar vein, saying that people think that they have a choice when they're reading self-help, but in reality, self-help actually just makes the individual feel badly about themselves for being unable to transcend their circumstances and their economic conditions. So the critique of self-help is that it's really ignoring the fact that there are systemic and structural conditions that will limit everybody's ability to achieve success and, you know, improve themselves. And this was a critique that was reiterated in a sense by Michel Foucault, uh, the French philosopher, who similarly, he had a more deterministic view of the way people are conditioned by their environments and their origins. And self-help, of course, has this 
fantasy that if you think in the right way, if you do the right steps, you'll be able to get anything you want. That's the great, you know, wish fulfillment kind of premise of self-help. And so intellectuals come along and they say, well, that's not actually true. It depends on how privileged you are, where you come from, all these factors. And, and it's a mistake to tell individuals that they can get anything they want if they just think in the right way, because um, this puts a tremendous burden on the individual and makes them feel responsible and like they're doing something wrong or immoral if they fail to achieve success or prosperity. Yeah, I think we can look to modern examples of this actually, where self-help can be almost manipulative in convincing people that they have all the agency to take control of things if they just believe it into existence. Just recently, actually, the Washington Post published a story on Donald Trump's dangerous optimism about the coronavirus pandemic, which they said was inspired by Norman Vincent Peale's self-help book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Yes, so Trump's his father was a real disciple of Norman Vincent Peale, and, and Trump himself attended Peale's congregation in, in Manhattan, and they had several kind of Trump family um, marriages and funerals at Peale's church. Um, so it's very hard for me to read a White House press statement without seeing the positive thinking logic everywhere. And I think most explicitly, it's in this idea that that saying something and repeating something can make it true. This idea of positive visualization is, is a really central tenet of um, positive thinking and that strain of self-help. The idea was that if you repeat something to yourself, one early positive thinking pioneer would say, you know, tell yourself in the morning every day, you have to say, every day in every way, I keep getting better and better. <laughs> and if you do that and you repeat it enough times, you will make it true. So the idea that simply uttering something could conjure it into existence is something that I think is very much at play in the, in the use of rhetoric as a way of trying to manifest a, a certain specific reality that we see happening with the White House right now. That's super interesting and honestly kind of scary. Going back to the literary side of things, we were wondering, are novels and self-help even that different? Bookstores shelve them near each other and often conflate the two, but is that more than just a marketing goal? Are we drawing a distinction where there should only be a spectrum? I think your book mentioned that today, the novel and self-help are not at loggerheads with each other to the same extent that they used to be. I mean, this is really the question that, that underlies this course that I offer sometimes at Harvard called How to Live When Literature Meets Self-Help. And we read these novels that are borrowing techniques from self-help literature and often framing themselves as how-to guides or self-help guides. So we read Sheila Hetty's How Should a Person Be, which is a novel, or Mohsen Hamid's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which is also a novel, <laughs> though you wouldn't know it from the titles of either of these works. But we read them and we think about the ways in which many contemporary authors are borrowing from the, the kind of desires that bring readers to self-help handbooks and using them in their fiction. Often for these authors, their invocation of self-help will begin as a kind of gimmick or joke. Um, they think it's a kind of funny thing to do to title a novel as a how-to guide. But then they, they start to really think seriously about what the status of, of ethics is today in our society, what does make a meaningful life, what kind of advice can the novel offer when we're surrounded by so many sources of advice today. 
uh, unsolicited often. So they end up often, I think, contemporary novelists uh, developing a much more complicated and earnest engagement with popular advice genres and really trying to work through the question of how to live in ways that can be really fun to unpack. Yeah, I think that brings us to a kind of meta question that we were curious about. Is literature losing something by insisting on aestheticism for its own sake? I was especially struck by this passage in your book. Maybe I'll quote it for our listeners. Scholars today are wringing their hands over the question of the nature of literature's influence and necessity. Self-help has no such qualms about its utility and insists on the singular appeal of literature to offer models for how to survive. It seems like self-help is so necessary. We have this compulsion for it. While literature is just art, is literature losing by that distinction? Well, sometimes I, I regret that literary studies is suffering from this crisis of confidence right now. And this is partly because of institutional pressures and external pressures, but feeling the need to justify itself in other interdisciplinary terms. So often I think you'll find literary scholars feeling like they need to explain their import or relevance by using the metrics of the sciences or economics or history and saying you should read literature because you can get historical knowledge or economic knowledge or even scientific knowledge or something. What I am jealous of <laughs> in self-help is the kind of audacity with which a self-help author will just say, read this book because it will change your life because literature is useful in its own terms. So we think of self-help as this really instrumental genre, which it is in some ways, but at the same time, it's saying read literature for its own sake because it will just make you a better human being and allow you to experience life more fully. And it's actually not seeking recourse to these other disciplines and these other styles of, of justification. So I think that that literature could stand to be a little bit uh, stronger um, in, in kind of claiming its, its, its right to exist and its necessity. At the same time, I would hate to see literature just completely uh, begin pandering to this really utilitarian or instrumentalist economy that, that self-help often manifests and represents. Do you think the reason why literary scholars tend to frame their work in terms of another discipline is because it's less clear what is the knowledge content of the humanities? I think I'm especially intrigued by this ambiguity after taking Professor David Allworth's class on literary study, where this was the driving question. I think that that, that is precisely the problem, that there's an intangible value uh, studying literature that, that can't be encompassed by these other more empirical methods of justification. There are not empirical deliverables when you read literature in the same way as, as when you study medicine or something, even though some people will try to say that there are because they're trying to, to save literature and to, to guard a space for it. But I think that literary studies needs to learn to adopt a little bit more negative capability in a way and to be more comfortable with that um, intangible quality of what it's doing and what it's preserving. There's, there's a great quote by uh, Blanchot who says, the use of literature is to represent that uselessness without which civilization would be impossible. <laughs> um, so the idea that we need to protect a space for seemingly useless experiences, because that's part of what makes life meaningful and allows us to experience and immerse ourselves in the present in the way that authors like Virginia Woolf have, have recommended. So, so that's the real challenge confronting literary studies today, I think. That's such a beautiful way to put it. 
Going back to modernism, a genre that's especially focused on embracing the intangible, I guess for most people, I feel like modernism is often pretty inaccessible. I mean, I love to read, but I have to say that I've started Swan's Way many times and made embarrassingly little progress. Are there any strategies you'd recommend for people who want to broaden their literary interests to get into modernism? Well, first of all, I would say that those feelings are totally legitimate. I'm not the kind of modernist scholar who says, oh, what? You feel that it's hard to read modernism? No, modernism is all fun and laughter and games. No, not at all. I, I think that the, the difficulty of it and the kind of challenging resistance of, of reading a modernist book is part of the point. I would I would just recommend that new readers of modernism embrace a, an attitude of generosity, that they allow themselves space to, to assume that the author has a real point or authentic vision that they want to convey, and that they're not just trying to show off and be clever and, um, and be flashy. That's the reputation that people like Wolf and Joyce and even Proust can have. But I would say, no, they really believe that you have to read and write in this way to capture what it feels like to be a person in the world. They have something really important that they want to say about what it feels like to be alive, and it has to be said in this way, and it couldn't be said in easier ways. And so I would just recommend that people really um, embrace that and, and be generous in their first encounters with modernism. Yeah, I love that. I think what you said about how new readers should just embrace this attitude of generosity is really beautiful. Before we close out the episode, one last question. Could you maybe offer us a pandemic book recommendation? I just read Zadie Smith's recent collection, Intimations, which is excellent. Um, it's a collection of essays that she wrote just as the pandemic was was starting and, and so published very quickly in a series of short recommendations. And that I would recommend but with it, I would recommend the book that it begins by um, referencing, which is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is a work of Stoic philosophy um, that uh, Smith says she turned to in a kind of self-help fashion when the pandemic began, um, looking for advice about how to make it through. And I have to say that I myself, um, I think that Stoic philosophy can be a great resource for training oneself to adjust to difficult circumstances and, and to alter one's expectations and to learn to accept a degree of uncertainty and unpredictability, which I think is what we're all facing right now. <laughs> I'm actually reading White Teeth by Zadie Smith right now, and it's wonderful, so I'll definitely take that recommendation. That was such a lovely and thought-provoking conversation. I think it's definitely made both Caitlin and I think more about our own compulsions for self-help, and we're looking forward to finishing your book. Thank you so much for speaking with us. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Veritas Lab. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Sanjana, and we'll see you next time. 